the people we choose have to understand that it's more than just getting the job done at the end of the day. It's really helping these children become, right? And it's just getting out of the way and letting them have this beautiful, safe space to grow themselves. We really can solve a lot of our world problems, I believe, through conscious eating and conscious growing and conscious living and service. And nothing teaches you service more than cooking. That's why I do feel so connected to the mission of Little Kitchen Academy, because we kind of do have that same passion and purpose in making a difference for future generations. Yeah, no, we think this is a transformational experience, sending your kid to Little Kitchen Academy. It's transformational. A good kitchen produces good food, but a great kitchen brings people together. Welcome to Meet Me in the Kitchen, a podcast inspired by Little Kitchen Academy and supported by Birkenstock, exploring the key ingredients to a meaningful life and how they are changing lives from scratch. Here's my dad and your host, Scott Rintoul. It's that time of the year when families and friends get together to share food, stories, and catch up on the year that has been. We're no different at Meet Me in the Kitchen, so what better time to reflect on all that has happened on this podcast in 2023? Through this medium, we've been able to introduce you to nearly 30 people this year, each of them with a unique perspective and a story about how they became a part of the vast network that is the Little Kitchen Academy family. Over the course of these conversations, a number of common threads have emerged. One of those is service, which is one of the key ingredients at Little Kitchen Academy. Serving the students so they can better serve their families and communities is at the heart of why Felicity and Brian Curran started LKA. And that was very evident when I spoke to both of them at length in episode 28. In this past year... Felicity and I and our whole entire team, like everyone has grown so much and we're so proud of every single one of them. But I think the clear thing that's come out is that we really know who we are. Like we really understand what we have. We really know where it's going. Again, we know who we are unapologetically and, you know, we don't make exceptions. I think we've learned a lot this year too on intentions because What a great thing to be a part of where everybody that sees a Little Kitchen Academy, hears the podcast, looks at our website, heard from somebody else, however they come across from it, it's the same reaction. It's never, I don't get it, or what is that? Or I don't know, could that work? Or the reaction is 100% all the time. Oh my gosh, I love this. I wish I had this growing up. I wish my kids could have gone to this. My kids need to go to it. My kitchen should look like this. It's just so powerful, not because of us, but because of all the people that are surrounding us in this environment. And at the end of the day, it's because of the students. Like when we get out of the way, when everyone realizes, and it's hard to understand what we really do, it's trying to stay so disciplined to stay out of the way. This podcast and why it's working, stay out of the way. (laughs) Don't overthink it. Don't try to be strategic. We don't monetize this at all. We just keep doing it. And I think that's the thing that's probably more clear than anything is the confidence level of what we are and what we're not, more importantly. 
the podcast is a good reflection of that in many ways as well, because there are oftentimes I do these episodes and I look at the waveforms. You don't really need to worry about, but mine has very little on it. And the guest has massive amounts. And I realize I barely talked. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing because that means they're comfortable enough to share and be vulnerable and tell us the emotional part of the story. You guys told me a year ago when we did this that you both had completely different ideas about the thought of franchising. Brian was on it from the get-go. You were very hesitant, Felicity. And part of the reason now that makes it hard is you're not in the environment on a day-to-day basis. I do want to know what it's like for you when you fly into a new city and you see a new little kitchen academy, whether it's Portland, whether it's suburb of Toronto, whether it's Edmonton, which is coming soon, what does that feel like? It's awe. That's what I feel, complete awe, because here I'm meeting, you know, 10 or 15 new people who have been trained to think the way I think and who are excited to meet us and to say, oh, I can't wait to show you what I'm doing. I can't wait to show you how I present a class and how I chat with a student. It really makes me happy. It makes me want to stay a little bit longer and put on a pair of chef shoes and actually get in there. But I also, I think I've moved into, or I'm trying to move into this evolution of here is my job to elevate everybody else now. You know, I'm not an expert by any means in anything in life other than what's going on in those four walls. I am an expert there and our entire team, everybody we train is an expert in those four walls. And it's so fun to share these beautiful moments with everybody. You know, doing LKU, having these new franchise partners come in, I'm just so excited for them because I feel great watching these little children or these big children, who are we kidding, you know, use a can opener for the first time and feel really great about it. And that's a 17 year old, if you can believe it, right? Or having a child crack an egg and scream with excitement. I get to share that and I get to experience it through somebody else's lens, which is really nice. It's still hard. Right. It's still hard. You know, I said, listening to the girls podcast the other day, you know, that's my mom. You know, I want to do this. And yeah, I really do. I want to be in there and I want to take these pictures and I want to watch them sneak a big chunk of cheese and, and do all these fun things. But it's rewarding seeing others do it. That's pretty powerful. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned the girls and, you know, that's my mom. And a year ago, you know, one of our daughters was in Toronto going to school, focused on a certain major and she made a decision to now move back to Vancouver to go to UBC and shifting her focus on early childhood development and, and special needs because she sees what her mom has done, what Little Kitchen does and the impact it's having. And she's actually now our assistant director. So our little daughter <laughs> that was interviewed before is now this woman, this young woman, powerful, you know, as an assistant director in something that we created. and. That's pretty special to us. I think from the franchise perspective, when we say we really know who we are now and where we're going and what we're doing is, you know, we don't make exceptions, um, which makes it hard to find great people. It makes it hard to find great people that have the right intention, not only in the beginning because they want to be part of this, but that are actually true to that and stay true to that. And whether Felicity, you know, you didn't share it, but I, I would imagine too that when we do go into a new market, that it's a mixed feeling. It is that awe. It's that, oh my gosh, and look what we did. And, you know, these incredible people are part of it. And it's also that that nervousness of, I hope they can continue to do it. I hope they're true. Because that's really what franchising is, is you're getting into business, not 
by yourself, but with other people. And there's a system and there's all these things in place not to come in and do it differently or dilute the brand or dilute the purpose or, you know, the reasoning behind it. So a year ago, it was, you know, looking at how do we expand more and find more franchise partners. And now we're saying, you know, it's tough to find those great people that have the ability to do it. But there's amazing people that want to be part of it that don't have the financial ability to do it necessarily, but they've got everything else more than most. So now looking at how do we empower them? How do we get them and change their lives by them coming in and changing our lives and sharing this gift in such a genuine way? And I think that's a huge difference from where we were probably a year ago. It's interesting because the standard and the experience is so unbelievably high. You know, and you look, I don't want to brag or anything, but if you look at our Google reviews, you look at our feedback, it is unbelievably high. So could you cut corners and just do something, you know, on the bare minimum? Unfortunately, you could, and it would still be great because there isn't anything like this. So the people we choose have to understand that it's more than just getting the job done at the end of the day. It's really helping these children become right? And it's just getting out of the way and letting them have this beautiful, safe space to grow themselves in that three-hour time and not cut corners and not, you know, do things just a little bit faster so we can get through it a little bit quicker. It's really spend that beautiful time and let them blossom. Like everybody knows hydroponic fruit or, you know, a selective fruit or forced fruit or vegetable isn't as good as something that takes its time and spends the time in this beautiful, perfect environment mother nature gives you. It's very similar, right? We have to let these children have the time. And that has been an interesting journey, making sure that we have these people who really understand that. And I think we're getting pretty good. I think we're getting pretty good at filtering out the difference. And I think that people now are starting to realize because our team is so strong. And, you know, when you have a group of people that's so committed, it's working so hard only for one reason, to make sure everyone is successful, to make sure that those students walk out an inch taller with pride than when they walked in, delivering on what we set out to do in the beginning, delivering what Felicity originally was imagining before Little Kitchen was even Little Kitchen Academy of these students just being empowered. And when you have such a, you know, lofty and almost audacious vision and purpose of becoming a global leader and teaching practical life skills and and food literacy to children. And when you're that serious and committed about it, you start to realize we're not screwing around and the posturing changes and the attitude changes and our skepticism grows deeper in people that want to be part of this. And it's like, well, why? Because everybody does and everyone's going to tell us the same thing. But at the core, you know, are you in it for the right reasons? Because this is the long game and For us, it's constantly looking at that and making sure we're protecting our people, our family, because when you have founders that are a husband and wife that have put everything into something, you know, for the greater good, and you've got three daughters that are, you know, instructors and one an assistant director, and, you know, their lives have been changed with this, people realize we're not screwing around. And Little Kitchen Academy is, you know, parking for good human beings only. (laughs) All others can go park somewhere else. Service might not be the first word that comes to mind when the name Shep Gordon comes up, but you only need to talk to him for a few minutes to learn that it should be. The man who famously managed the likes of Alice Cooper, Teddy Pendergrass, and Emeril Lagasse, just to name a few, has an unwavering passion for service. 
and a good portion of our conversation in episode 38 was devoted to that. Like most things in life, Shep has a remarkable story about how he developed that passion and why it partially explains why he was so captivated by Little Kitchen Academy after taking his son there for a class. Everything about it blew my mind. There were little aspects that I thought were so significant, like not having the parents be in the room, having them be independent, and then having them share the lunch with us that they had made. My boy was so proud to be able to do that. He only went to one class because we live in Maui. And ever since then, he participates in our meals. From that one class, he's more interested. He's more involved. I think it will really lead to a better life for him on many levels. Whether he ever does it professionally or not doesn't really matter. But it teaches him life lessons that are just beautiful. And watching him chop with a knife, he was so proud to turn on his mixing machine. Really empowered him. Given how much you put into hosting for others and what that means to you personally, that must have been the cherry on top for you at the end of the class, the community table, and all of those children sitting together and sharing their meals together in community. In community and purposeful on a bamboo table made from spare parts. Everything was purposeful. So even if they didn't realize it at the moment, those are the kind of things that seep in. Sort of my talking about my dad's example. Those are the subtle things that seep in, putting the shoes back in the little place, the Birkenstocks, empowered with their cooking jackets. Just really was really beautiful and had an amazing amount of innocence, which a lot of times in classrooms you don't come across. And the innocence is still there. You've had a gift over the course of your career for seeing what is possible for artists, for chefs, for different creators before they end up becoming worldwide phenomenons in many of those cases. You've seen the magic and just described what you've seen at Little Kitchen Academy. What do you believe that Little Kitchen Academy is capable of? Oh, I think it's a gigantic force in, in a lot of ways. You know, there's so many issues around feeding people. I mean, as the population explodes, it becomes even more and more critical that people learn how to grow their own foods, learn what they're eating, learn how to prepare things. It's not just about going to a store and buying a box of potato chips. We really can solve a lot of our world problems, I believe, through conscious eating and conscious growing and conscious living and service. And nothing teaches you service more than cooking and serving the meal after. It hits all the points for me that are important. One of the things that came into my mind when I was there was when I first started working with chefs, Emeril Agassi was one of my first ones. And the first thing we did in the commercial world to monetize them was we made up emerald spices and he would go bam and throw the spices in. And it worked very well. Our biggest seller of the spices was a school lunchbox at Walmart for the kids to take to school with some of the spices in it. Because the viewership at the Food Network when it first started was a lot of kids, eight and 10 and 12 year old kids who would watch the Food Network. So there's always been that connection. It's just nobody's really taken advantage of it and no one's given it a purpose and a sense. So, you know, when I went to the academy, I said, this is so amazing because if you can start a person young, understanding how to make his life better through diet and sustainability and the environmental impact, all the pieces that they're teaching, we can make a much better planet, which we need to do. Well, and you mentioned something 
that's really important, I think. It's that osmosis that occurs in that environment that they've created at Little Kitchen Academy because children don't have these guardrails or barriers to what is possible. They think everything is possible. So when they see a living food wall growing indoors, that doesn't strike them as odd. That strikes them as something that anybody could do anywhere in the world. And pick their own stuff and then eat it. And they really get to see how connected it all is. The line between that basil and them is not that gigantic. They both need water. They both need food. They both need sun. They need all the same things. They're born, they die. They're part of the life cycle. You obviously have a passion and a deep love for cooking. How did that develop? My journey was really different. I was always a macaroni and ketchup kind of guy. <laughs> Make big buckets <laughs> and the Sara Lee cheesecakes. That was sort of my life. And then in the 70s, I was very lucky. I won the Cannes Film Festival. And I got taken to a restaurant. And I met the chef who owned the restaurant, who turned out to be the first five-star Michelin chef in the world, Chef Roger Berger, but I didn't know it at the time. And when he walked in the room, I got this feeling over myself that this was the man who could show me the path to be happy. I was very happy every minute of the day but I knew that I was headed for a crash. I was living in a really fast lane. I was managing a lot of big artists. I just won the Con Festival, had a nightclub. Drugs were everywhere. I was definitely headed for a crash. And I didn't know how to stop it because I was having such a good time. Every minute was so fantastic. And then this gentleman walked in the room and for some reason I said, he's got the key to unlock my happiness. And I went over to him and told him that because I was pretty drunk at the time. And he didn't speak a lot of English, didn't really understand me, but allowed me to be a part of his life for a moment. I went to Bangkok with him and went to the dinners that he was cooking. And as a desire to get close to him, he said, you know, if you really want to spend time with me, my language is cooking. Do you know how to cook? And I know. And he said, well, if you learn how to cook, you can work with me and spend some time. So he gave me names of some cooking schools. I went to both cooking schools the next year, and that started our journey. And for the next 25 years, we'd spend probably a month of the year together. He would take me on a journey somewhere, whether he was cooking in Bangkok, or we'd go tour Champagne, and he let me into his life. And once I started to immerse myself in his way of life, which was the culinary arts, I found my passion. I never really had it for music or film. I would never put on an album just to put on an album. But when I found cooking, I found what I enjoyed. I could cook 20 hours a day and be really happy. So that was my journey. And then I wanted to pay him back. And through that journey, I realized that the culinary arts were almost considered like, you know, waiters or busboys. There was no separation between the chef and anyone else. They didn't realize what great artists they were. And I had the skill set to make people famous. So that was... When I started, I put together about 100 chefs, Wolfgang Puck and Nobu and everybody, and we decided to get famous. <laughs> well, it worked out extremely well, and it's kind of come all the way back in an interesting way to connect us because one of those chefs down the road, Kat Cora, is involved with Little Kitchen Academy, and it does seem like a nice circle of life in that respect as well. There are a number of elements based on that answer that I want to get to, but one of them is this. What is cooking for you right now in the present? I cook a lot. I probably cook three, four nights a week. 
I really enjoy doing stuff I haven't done before. Last night I made a mushroom pasta that had a little bit of tomato paste in it. It was unusual. It was nice. And my boy is an adventurous eater, so I can make stuff for him. But I just love the journey. That's sort of my life is putting together dinner parties here and getting people who don't, maybe don't know each other together, trying to have some interesting conversations and enjoy a good meal. And for me, it's service. The question I always ask is, what do you like to eat? And then I cook to that rather than taking them on my highway. I'd much rather see where they want to go. That doesn't surprise me for a second because you are about service and you have made a career based on others, whereas some people want someone to come into their home so that they can show them what a great chef they are. You're concerned with your audience, and that truly is service. Where does that motivation for service, where does that perhaps sense of obligation for service come from, Shep? It came from that chef. I really didn't understand service at all. I mean, I was doing it in a way, but I wasn't doing it consciously. And again, he was very much like my father. He never would say to me, do this, do that, do this. But by example, I could see the things that he did were always of service and compassionate. He would always ask if I was bringing people to dinner, which I did quite a lot. What did they like? Do you think they'd like a leg of lamb? Always wanted to know what made them happy. There was a, a moment with him, I think it was one of the searchlight moments in my life. It was maybe the second or third year we had that we're spending this month together. He would always choose the restaurants. We would go to his friend's restaurants. And one night our event went late and his friend's restaurant closed. So we had to go just to any restaurant. We walked in off the street. The maitre d' knew who Verger was. You could see the place changed a little bit. And we got the meal and I didn't enjoy the meal at all. I, I ate maybe half of my plate and he ate his whole thing. We could see the chef looking out the kitchen door once in a while. And he took my plate and he finished my plate. And we went outside and when we left, I said, you know, Mr. Verger, could you tell me what you found in that that was so exciting that you wanted to have my plate also? Because I couldn't find anything in it and I'm trying to learn, you know, what was it? And he said, oh, chef, it was horrible. And I said, well, Mr. Verger, if it was horrible, why did you eat my plate? And he said, you know, chef, the chef, he was looking and if he saw plates come back with food on it, he would have a miserable night. And I didn't wake up this morning to make him miserable. I can eat a little bit of bad food. And it was this sort of light bulb went off. And it's not about you. Get off that ship. It's about service. And he was happy as could be, even though he had a bad meal. He was happy as could be because he fulfilled what he could do as a human. Yeah, that, that was a transformative moment for me. There are so many different ways to serve others, and the effervescent Stacy Roy displayed another variation in episode 36. The winner of Lego Masters Season 3 has built her career brick by brick, refusing to be limited by any label placed on her or by the decisions of others. In addition to her Lego building skills, she's an actor, a host, a YouTube personality, and a creator. Instead of following the conventional path, Stacy has forged her own route to success and serves as a shining example of what independence, determination, and courage to try can lead to. I don't want to have any regrets in life. 
I think failure is a great thing. I would rather fail at something instead of like never trying at all. The not knowing scares me more than failing. And so I really let that drive me. And I want to fail because when you fail, you learn, you grow. So anytime something scares me and I might want to back away, I just tell myself, I'm like, oh no, you need to run head first and you got to give it everything you've got because this is where growth happens. This is where you learn. And that's just something that's like always stuck with me ever since I was young. I think it's served me well so far. And I would love to see that more with people too. It's like, don't be afraid of failing. It's not that bad. Even if you do fail, it's okay. You'll pick yourself back up and you'll learn and you'll grow and you'll continue on. So you have that willingness and you have that openness to a variety of opportunities. Your career trajectory proves that out. So how did your upbringing help instill that growth mindset in you? Or was there a pivotal moment that changed things for you along the way? Well, I'll just say I have the most amazing parents ever. They're wonderful. They've encouraged every dream that I've had. And I feel very fortunate and very grateful that I did have that upbringing. So again, I wasn't too scared going into anything. I always felt like I had my support system and people that would help me get back up if I fell. So I'm just really, really grateful for that. And then, yeah, there's just been probably lots of different times in my life where I just, I was able to show myself like, you can do this. Like, it's going to be okay. When you first got into this, was the goal be an actor, stay in that role and just get yourself in television and film. And that's how it's going to work itself out. Yeah. I think I definitely had this idea that I was going to be an actor. And so after film school, I started auditioning a lot. And then I realized I didn't have a lot of control in that. So I was like, okay, well, no one's going to cast me in an action movie. I'm going to cast myself in an action movie. So I better learn how to edit and do visual effects and direct and learn about cameras and the whole works. And that's exactly what I did. So I could put myself in a position to take on the roles I really wanted to do, even if somebody didn't think I was the right fit for them. And then throughout that process, I just learned so much and saw so many different opportunities and ways I could take this career. What does your creative process look like? You told us how the nerdy bartender came about, but when you're dreaming up an idea for a short or for a show, what does it look like for you? So what I always try to remind myself is there are no bad ideas. There's just some ideas that are better than others. So I just try to write down everything. We did this on Lego Masters as well. When they would throw a challenge at us, Nick and I would grab the notepad and just be like, what ideas come to mind? And just write it all down. And then you can see what sticks, what really excites you, and then expand on that idea from there and really let it percolate and see what it could be. So who are your sounding boards throughout that process? Definitely think my Wabam community. I call them my Wabamers, my Wabam community. And that's this online community I've created because I've been a live streamer on Twitch and Amazon for so long. I've just built this beautiful community where I can tell them everything. I can share all my stories, all my dreams with, and they're my sounding board. I'll test things out with them. Even if it's jokes for an upcoming project or story ideas, I'll test it on them first and see what's working and what's not working. And I trust them fully. And I love their feedback. I have this amazing community that I can always count on. Where does the name word, whatever you (laughs) want to refer to it as Wabam come from? Okay. So many, many years ago, I used to always just say, well, bam, like if something excited me or I thought something was great, I'd be like, well, bam. And which is just a made up word. And then I realized other people around me started saying it. So especially back in my days when I was working as a server and a bartender, I'd hear people say it and I'm like, oh, that's my word. 
this word's catchy. I like it. And I just kind of expanded from there. So when it came to creating my own film production company, I was like, I should go with Wabam. It's an energetic expression of joy and positivity. And that's what I want my company to be all about. When I hear you say it, I just have that visual of a comic book where it's in big lightning bolt and bold colors above somebody's head. Wabam. Do you have any animation in your future? Exactly. That's exactly what I picture too. We have a few animated versions of Wabam, but I definitely think that we need more because that's how I see it. And like sometimes when I'm live streaming, I just give the biggest Wabam. Like I know it's, <laughs> I know it's a podcast. You can't see what I'm doing, but there's usually a lot of energy behind it. Some sort of like punching motion towards the camera. And yeah, we definitely need to do more animations for it for sure. I think the audience can hear how animated you are. I don't think they need to be able to see it. I think that's the beauty of this podcast and your presentation style as well. What's interesting to me about the different roles you've taken on is that when you're acting, you assume the role of a character, as you talked about before. But when you're Stacey Roy, that is at least some interpretation of your authentic self. And those lines can get blurred, whether you're playing the character that everyone wants to see, Stacey Roy, or whether it's actually the authentic Stacey Roy herself. How do you approach that situation when you're representing yourself with your own name, but also assuming the role of some type of character? Ooh, that's a good question. I love getting to bring my authentic self to the table. And usually that's like an energy that's a bit dialed up for sure, but it's a part of me and it's who I am. And then when I look at a character, I just really try to find things that are true to myself within that character because that's so much easier to play than trying to be something that you're not. And that's why I really loved when I started to get into hosting because even when I was acting and auditioning, there were a lot of times that people kind of wanted to put me in a box and be like, this is who you should be or this is what you are and this is what you're not. And it felt very confusing, especially when I was so young, still trying to figure that out. And it definitely got to a point where I was then just playing these different characters and not knowing who I was. And then when I was given the opportunity to host something and they were like, just be yourself. And I did that and I found success in that. It was the best feeling in the world. So I think with everything I do, I just try to find the pieces of myself that are there and bring those to the character or the part that I'm doing. The way you describe that of being put in a box, I think a lot of people can relate to. And it's very understandable why that would be confusing, especially as you're starting out that process. As you said, you were quite young at the time. Was there a particular influence or someone you looked up to to emulate along the way that helped you carve out your own identity in this space? I think there was probably like a quite a few online people at the time, like YouTube was really just getting going. And I was seeing all of these quirky personalities that were finding success in that. I always take it back to, I remember I went out for an audition. It was for a chewing gum commercial. <laughs> And the role called for quirky and wacky and silly and energetic. And my agent said to me at the time, I know you're not those things, but I think you should go out for this audition anyway. And that was really like kind of weird and confusing to me because I was like, oh, I guess that's not who I am. I don't know. I feel like I'm a pretty quirky person. Anyway, I ended up booking it. <laughs> And that's when I was kind of like, okay, I got to stop letting people tell me who I am. And YouTube, again, was starting to become a thing. And I was just seeing all these great personalities, you know, and women that love video games and Star Wars and things that I wasn't used to hearing about. And that just really inspired me to be like, I should just be who I want to be and see what happens. Well, that's a great approach. And based on the role you have and the different platforms that you have, 
you have the opportunity to influence a lot of people, including kids. And to bring this back to our conversation about Little Kitchen Academy, some of those students that you are working with in the two locations, they're going to look you up on YouTube or Twitch or whatever platform you happen to be going on down the road. What do you want them to see when they watch Stacy Roy? I think I just want them to see that you can really be anything and do anything. Again, I keep bringing it back to I've cultivated this positive community online. I feel like everything that I do, I just want to bring out the best in people and encourage people to be the best version of themselves. And I hope that's what they see. I hope they see someone that has lots of crazy passions and things that they want to pursue and just runs with it and gives it everything they've got and go, hey, maybe I can do that too. Maybe even if that career doesn't exist right now, it might exist in the near future because we live in this wonderful world that's constantly changing and anything is possible. That's what I hope they see. Well, and that really feeds into the philosophy at Little Kitchen Academy where they believe they have the key ingredients to help people become and children become independent thinkers and independent people. Obviously, you witnessed some of that when you were in the classroom in both Vancouver and Los Angeles. Where did your sense of independence come from? You mentioned your parents earlier. Did you find yourself in that sense earlier or did it take a long time? I think it took a little while. Like, I think I was definitely a confident child growing up and, you know, we all have our ups and downs through our teenage years, of course. Yeah, I think it took probably a little bit longer than I would have liked in my early 20s to really like find myself and figure that out. But I always had people encouraging me along the way, which just, it meant everything and just having that support system. And you can really see that with the kids in the classes. Like, They're so encouraged to just think for themselves, to have fun and to really figure out who they are. And I just, I love that. I think it's so great. And I'm so glad that I get to be a part of it. Next up is a portion of episode 33, which featured David Moscow. As a child actor who hit the jackpot playing the younger version of Tom Hanks' character in the movie Big, David had a very clear career path laid out in front of him. He's worked as an actor in film, television, and on stage for well over three decades, but he's also developed his skills as a writer and producer along the way. It all led him to create the popular program From Scratch, which has not only changed the way he looks at how he and his family eat, but has provided him with an opportunity to serve others by educating his audience on where food comes from in a very entertaining manner. You know, I felt like recently America has felt very, the bonds are pulling apart. feels very, you know, black or white. Everyone's at each other's throats. And I was thinking about, I've been an actor for a long time. I produce indie film. And I was trying to think of like, well, what's something that we could make that could bring people together? No matter what the political winds are around sort of migrant workers in the United States, everybody loves a margarita. And everybody loves a taco. You know, tacos are the third most consumed food item. Margaritas are the number one cocktail. So let's go and follow the people who make these, you know, because I think once you sort of like show the hard work and expertise, whether it's a hemador in Jalisco or a subsistence corn farmer in Oaxaca, you know, it's undeniable, you know, the hard work and the expertise. So we were just going to do a documentary and my agent was like, that's a terrible idea. 
He was like a doc that maybe goes to Sundance if you're lucky, that maybe gets bought by HBO and shows for like a month and then everybody kind of forgets about it. But if you do a different food group every week, now that's a television show. And then you're looking at sort of the sources of food. And we make it a little fun because I'm not an expert in any of this. I'm a foodie. I like to eat, but I don't know how things are made. And so I'm kind of a layman who's learning. I'm a surrogate for the audience. I fail a lot. So some chefs will, and this is part of the fun, will I succeed? They're asking for salmon and I fail and bring them a butternut squash. And then they have to roll with that as well. So yeah, it's been really amazing and it's clicked. So we're on Taste Made now. We started off on History Channel and A&E FYI. And then Taste Made came in with an offer we couldn't refuse. And we are now one of the most popular shows there because I think people are interested, whether it's from COVID, you know, I think that was a big thing. People got back together, sitting around the table, cooking with each other. A lot of people started gardens. People realized that they had become very distant from their food and that they're asking a lot of the same questions I am on the show. So what are you hoping that the audience takes away from each episode or the series as a whole? Well, you know, this distance from the food. When I first started, it really was about showing the community and how we all like People tend to think that they're on an island. Oh, I did this all by myself. But then when you realize it takes 68 people to make a slice of pizza, eh, you're not alone, my friend. If you, if you like pizza, if you want to eat pizza, you're connected to this broader web. And that was why we started it. But going through it, you know, you realize that food producers and food is at the center of these larger questions of like, Global climate change. How are farmers handling this? Overfishing, overconsumption. Oceans are emptying out. What does the fact that we've become more distant from the food that we're eating do to our bodies, do to the environment, do to the animals that we're raising to eat, and to the people that we are paying to give us food? So all these questions, you know, it's this big ball of twine. And when you start pulling the thread, you realize that all parts of our lives are related to this. And at the center of it is, sadly, will humanity survive? And our show is poppy and adventurous and a lot of fun. And we like to say that we hide the medicine and the ice cream, right? So there are larger things that we're talking about, but it's under the guise of me like slipping and falling down a hill, harvesting bananas, right? One of the things that you mentioned on the website, and I imagine you go through in the book as well, is that when you talk about food sources, food systems, ethics, humanity, that there's a right way, and that there's a lot of people doing good work. I don't think the general public knows, or perhaps they don't take the time to investigate. So how does the average person find out or figure out what the correct way to consume is? That's a good question. And that's something that happens, especially when I give talks, people at the end of it will be like, all right, well, what do we do? Again, I'm not an expert. So I point people to experts. I think a good place to start is the slow food movement. There is probably a slow food org in your country, in your town, in your city. Call them up. They will direct you to really fun, like farm dinners that you go out and you meet your farmer and you eat, or they'll just give you steps that you can take. And then aside from that, like, you know, we've been running into a lot of issues around oceans because we do go fishing a bunch and, you know, the stocks are collapsing. We were in the Mediterranean, which has never been a very fertile ocean. It doesn't have any major rivers that run into it. And it's had 28 countries that have been hammering it for over 10,000 years. And so it's pretty empty. 
similar stuff is going on with the South China Sea. There was just this, I don't know if, if you guys heard about it, but when Barbie came out, Vietnam decided they weren't going to show it because in the movie, there was a map of the South China Sea. It's China's map of the South China Sea, which basically China says, we own all of this. So there's actually this huge battle that's really about fish and somewhat shipping lanes, but mostly about fish. And there are eight countries. There's a territorial dispute and the fish have dropped 90% in 50 years. So no matter what, they have to reach across these international divides and say, you think this is yours and I think it's mine, but if we want any fish here, we have to figure out how to manage this correctly. So here's another thing, a positive thing that comes out of that. That's another way that people can, particularly with fish, sustainably caught wild fish is a must. So bringing back the South China Sea, I did an episode in the Philippines. We were looking for fish. We couldn't find any. That's when we sort of pulled this thread and realized what was going on there. And something positive happened. The citizens of the EU voted that any of the fish that was going to be imported needed to be sustainably caught or raised. So the Philippines and a number of other countries in the South China Sea would like to sell to the EU. So now they had to change their fishing practices, which is a positive thing. Now, more and more, they're leaning towards sustainable fishing. As you said earlier, you wrap the medicine in the ice cream. So there is an educational component and there's an ethical purpose to what you're doing with your production through an entertaining medium. I can see through the values that you have with your show and in doing research for this conversation, why things align very well with Little Kitchen Academy, but I'm very interested to know how you came in contact with Little Kitchen Academy and how that intersection became a relationship. So my son goes to Little Kitchen Academy. He travels with me on the show. At the moment, we're shooting seasons three and four, so we're like nomads. We're living out of Airbnbs. So he's milked goats, he's harvested eggs, he's fished for trout, uh, he's five. And he would see me cooking and was immediately interested in this. So we live in LA generally when we're not on the road and there is an LKA close to us. And we were blown away that this existed, especially for kids as young as him. Cause I think he started maybe when he was just turned four. So we thought at first we were just like, we knew the benefits of cooking. It teaches him responsibility. He feels like he's a part of the family. We do love the food that he cooks from there. And what we didn't realize is all of the other things that were going to come along with it. His math skills are ridiculous now. Like he knows fractions. He knows how to add. He knows how to subtract basic multiplication as well, all from making recipes there. And I think the confidence that goes into getting your hands dirty and creating something and then feeding us with it. That was amazing. He has no fear. He steps up and talks to people, adults, tells them what he wants. I mean, especially at restaurants. He'll tell you how things are made. We were both cooking bread. He's been going to the school for about a year. We were both cooking bread next to each other at the table in the kitchen. And at the end of it, my bread didn't rise very well and his was beautiful. It was a very depressing day for me. He was very excited. And then he declared the other day that he's not a better cook than me, but he's a better cook than mom. And we all kind of looked at each other and we're like, yeah, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, we think this is a transformational experience, sending your kid to Little Kitchen Academy. It's transformational. The most recent episode of Meet Me in the Kitchen featured Little Kitchen Academy instructor Carolyn Brokop. 
who undoubtedly deserves a place in a podcast that is highlighting service. In addition to her role at LKA, Carolyn is a registered nurse who works at BC Children's Hospital. It's very clear to see how anyone who devotes their life to healthcare is choosing to serve their fellow humans. But what makes Carolyn's story even more remarkable is that she felt a need to help others even further, which is eventually what led her to Little Kitchen Academy and into this compelling discussion. I do believe that I've always wanted to be a nurse, I think, even from the earlier years. And to be honest, I'm not even sure I gave myself much space to explore other opportunities. It just seemed like such a natural fit for me. I believe I have a very compassionate and empathetic heart and have always been inclined to want to help those in need and make a positive difference in the lives of others. So it just felt, again, very natural for me to enter nursing as a career and a profession. When did you first have that realization when you were growing up? Almost, I would say, even in junior high, I remember doing, it was kind of like a workshop where we had the opportunity to go in the community to explore different healthcare fields. And as soon as I kind of learned more about nursing, I knew, it again, it was a very good fit for me. And also my mom's a nurse, so I grew up as well having that exposure to what that field would look like as a career. Honestly, there was no doubt in my mind that nursing was what I wanted to do earlier on. And I transitioned straight from high school um, to pursue my degree in the Bachelor of Science in Nursing. So it was a very streamlined process for me. And as soon as I graduated, I did grant myself a couple months off to go traveling as well before I jumped straight into my first job, which I'm very glad that I did. And yeah, ever since then, I've been exploring different areas, but always within the pediatric field. Well, your motivation seems so natural. And from my vantage point, those are the types of people, yourself included, that we want in the medical field and in the nursing practice, those who have compassion and those who are generally motivated by helping others. Not everybody has the stomach for it. How are you able to compartmentalize that aspect of the job? Because I'm sure, especially with children in your current role, you see some things that a lot of people would turn away from. Yeah. So, you know, the funny part of that, and I would jump straight into, you know, just seeing blood per se is it is one thing I think to deal with that, you know, from a nursing point of view for other people. But to be honest, I have a very queasy stomach when it has anything to do with my own body. So that's kind of funny to share. But I would say that, you know, people always share with me, you know, being a pediatric nurse, especially must be so hard. And It is absolutely, but also very much one of the most rewarding careers, I believe, working with kids. There is something to be said about their strength and their resiliency, which I find is so inspiring. And at the end of the day, I find if I can put a smile on their face on one of their hardest days or give them a reason to laugh, then I know that I've made a difference. And that's why I want to show up to work on those days. It makes it all worthwhile. I have two children, so I know it's different when you're trying to deal with something that your child is going through as compared to something that yourself or another adult is going through. You mentioned that children are so resilient. They're also very innocent as well. How does what they're going through when you see them in pediatrics compare to what you see perhaps on the faces of their parents and trying to deal with the parents as well? 
Yes, honestly, it's probably one of the most challenging aspects of the career working within pediatrics because your patient is not only the child, but looking at the family and whoever their support system is as one whole unit. And so, you know, it takes a lot of energy, absolutely, to be able to show up for them in the best of your ways. And I think a big component of that for me and being able to do just that is also taking priority to care for myself and being mindful of my own energy. And I think the practices that I instill in myself outside of those hours in nursing, taking moments to clear my head before and after work is what truly enables me to come to work every day in a clear headspace to be able to show up for them in the best way that I can. Working in healthcare and specifically with what you've described with can be so all-encompassing, yet as we know and as we already introduced, you also work at Little Kitchen Academy as an instructor. I don't want to abandon the healthcare side of your life completely, but I do want to jump in now and ask how that became a reality and how you became an instructor at Little Kitchen Academy with all of this other stuff going on. Yes, that's a really good question. And it's a very deep question. I think it's been quite a journey for me, I would say, especially over the last six years. I think it started when I first moved to Vancouver six years ago with my husband. And I think some level of burnout as well kind of led me to taking a step back and trying to realize what I was most passionate about within my career. So I decided, and I think it was just fate at this point, where I was going for a walk in my neighborhood and I came across an open house sign for the Institute of Holistic Nutrition. And something about it just sparked my interest. And I didn't know what holistic nutrition was at the time, but I realized that I did want to just show up and learn a little bit more about what that program might have to offer. And I think that's when things really started to snowball for me. I really began taking an interest in my own health and wellness, as well as learning throughout the program. I wanted to explore how I can continue working with kids and with health, but from a more health promotional lens and disease prevention. And so as I was going through my nutrition program, I started nannying for a local family just for something different. And I learned he loved to cook, and so I wanted to explore what this could look like. So I would start to bring a printout of a simple, healthy recipe that we would cook together in their kitchen, as well as engage in food exploration activities, and he absolutely loved it. And just through conversation with his mom, she had shared with me that she enrolled him in cooking classes at Little Kitchen Academy. And from the minute that I heard about that, I was immediately intrigued and very curious to learn what that looked like. So I went straight to the website when I got home and found a contact for Alini, who was the director at the Point Grey location at the time, and was granted the opportunity to interview with her and was given the opportunity to be an instructor at the Point Grey location. So that's kind of what led me to where I am today. There's a lot there that I want to dig into. You have a career going on as a pediatric nurse, then you get interested in holistic nutrition, the childcare component of the job as a nanny as well. And then you get to this website and something strikes you about it that obviously resonates. What was it specifically about Little Kitchen Academy? Because there are a lot of places that children can learn to cook. Yes, absolutely. And I would love to take this opportunity to share with you one specific story that I hold really dearly to my heart because I think it really kind of put me in a space to reflect on my own life's purpose and harnessing that vision for myself and how I wanted to show up for the world. So... I was caring for a teenage patient who was admitted for a type of inflammatory bowel disease. And for the three days that I had caring for her, pain was a primary concern. 
And so each day we would come together as a team to try and figure out how we could continue to support her. And typically what would come out of that was a change in her medication, either, you know, increasing a dose or the frequency. But unfortunately, we could just not get ahead of the pain. And it was really heartbreaking to see how this disease progression was having not only on her physical health, but also on her mental well-being as well, and that of her family who were there at the bedside supporting her. And one thing that I do feel was overlooked, you know, during that time, and I'm sure this was kind of leading up to where she was in that moment as well, was the quality of her nutrition. And, you know, seeing the two liters of Coke at the bedside, her as a young teenage girl drinking coffee on an empty stomach, the level of processed food that was being brought up to her on her hospital tray was, you know, something that I was really starting to think about and really got me wondering perhaps how her story could have changed had she the tools and the education in her earlier years in building healthy practices for healthy eating and building a healthy relationship with food. And so I began to see that as a gap, I think, within our healthcare system. And that made me want to be a part of the conversation and changing the narrative and how we can better set up our community in providing these tools for the kids and their families and essentially to keep these kids out of the hospital by bringing them into the kitchen and setting themselves up for a more healthy, happy, and more fulfilling life. So I always look back to that story and that really continues to drive me and my interests in putting more of my energy in the community for this reason alone. And I think that's why I do feel so connected to the mission of Little Kitchen Academy, because we kind of do have that same passion and purpose in making a difference for future generations. One of the pillars of Little Kitchen Academy is inclusion, a steadfast belief that there's a place for everyone in the kitchen. And exceptional learners are no exception. Episode 26 shone a spotlight on that value in a discussion with Mark Comfort. Mark is a recreational therapist with Canucks Autism Network, which provides programs and opportunities to individuals on the autism spectrum. Mark has dedicated his career to serving a population of society that is all too often underserved and underestimated. So he was elated to find such a refreshing approach at Little Kitchen Academy when he took multiple members of his group to classes at LKA. I kind of expected the primary focus to be on the food and the cooking. When I was expecting to have to like adapt the cooking and by adapt, I mean like breaking down the instructions into like smaller pieces and really supporting our participants to be successful in that way, you know, providing like follow-up instructions or writing out the instructions for them or kind of modeling what the steps of the recipe were. But that's not at all what happened. The instructors were amazing. They did a really good job of front-loading what was going to happen in the session, kind of what the different steps were going to be before jumping into it. And then as the class went on, they did a great job of like modeling they had all the equipment that the participants were using with them so they were able to be like we're going to use the measuring cup that looks like this and you're going to have a spoon that looks like that and it'll be in this drawer and like those very specific detailed broken down instructions are exactly what a lot of our participants need to be successful in that environment so that in itself was really great but the really cool thing that happened was there was other members of the public that were there just like drop in participants or registered i'm not super sure. 
and our participants started to just connect with them and talk and just say, how's it going? Like, what school do you go to? Like kind of just practicing those social skills. I mean, like it's great for our participants to connect and engage with one another, but it's also amazing to see them like having those interactions with just like people their own age in a cooking class. Like that's great. And that's the environment they're looking to create at Little Kitchen Academy, which is, I would think, very much aligned with what you're doing with Canucks Autism Network. Even beyond the rap creation scope, it is about integration and about understanding what people can do as opposed to what they can't. What type of feedback did you get from the participants that you brought? People were stoked. Like almost every single family was like, can we come back? And I was like, yeah, you just have to sign up through this link. I had a lot of like emails from different parents and participants requesting the information to register, which is great. That doesn't always happen. That's not the baseline for these types of programs that are a one-off, but lots of great feedback. Everyone wanted to do it again. And my favorite part of that program was I went to the first session that we did on week one and we had our five participants and everyone had a great time which was awesome. But then I went back for week three, which was our last week. And one of the participants that had come on week one had been coming each week on their own. And they had just joined that little community so well. And they had friends that were there and that they were connecting with and that they were like goofing around and having a good time with. And that is exactly what I want from the programs that I run. I want our participants to find an activity that they enjoy in an environment that they are comfortable in and to just go and be successful. And like that is 100% what had happened with Little Kitchen Academy with that one participant in particular. But I think all of our participants really got a lot out of the program. So you said that's not the baseline where every family who goes and every participant who goes is clamoring to go back week after week. And can we do this again? What do you think it was about this particular experience that led to that? I think that it was... Like I said earlier, like the environment was really already built for our participants to be successful. So like the activity was really accessible. Everyone was successful with the activity. So that always feels great to be able to accomplish something. And like when you're cooking to have that like finished result of being like, oh, I did this by myself and like I enjoy it and it was delicious. So I think that was a big part of it. But I also feel like it was like a good environment for people to connect and socialize with one another. There was a good kind of split of instructions and cooking, but also just time to hang out and connect. So there was never like a pressure to socialize. Those moments just kind of happened organically and naturally. And I think that was probably what was the most impactful for our participants. It's a really good point that you bring up. And the greatest symbol of that for each class is that community table at the end where everyone sits down and they share their meals together and they get to taste what they've made during the course of that class. But you make an excellent point about the interaction that occurs during the course of a class. And to me, and again, this is just my perspective from the outside looking in, but I'd love to hear how you feel about it. Those types of environments foster people's beliefs that we are so much more the same then we are different. And those differences are something to celebrate as opposed to something that may remove us from the group. Yeah. And I think what really allowed that dynamic to really be fostered was that the level of support and instruction and detail was the same for everyone. So it wasn't as if our participants that are coming 
with maybe some different support needs than other participants that would be coming from the public have were singled out for having those support needs. It was just across the board. Everybody got the same level of support, which allowed everyone to be successful. And it wasn't as if one person was maybe having a really challenging time or was requiring a lot of extra attention from the instructor or any of those pieces that can really feel alienating for a lot of people, not just people on the spectrum. Um, So I think that was really huge in creating that environment where, like you said, it's just like people are different, but it's not like somebody's being singled out or like othered or whatever the case may be. There's a number of elements there that I actually want to dig into. One of those is the fact that it's a program for teens all the way up to the age of 18. When people hear that Little Kitchen Academy is a Montessori-inspired cooking school for children, they often think of elementary-aged kids. And those are great. There's nothing wrong with those. I happen to have two elementary-aged children, and they love those classes. But it's very important for those activities to continue. In your experience, how vital is that to provide opportunities for older kids and for teenagers who are part of the Canucks Autism Network? I think it's amazing (laughs) to be able to provide opportunities for that age group that are so accessible. I think that kind of the general expectation in society is that by the time you're 13, you no longer will need those adaptations or modifications and that you can just start to access like mainstream programming. And for most people, like whether they're on the spectrum or not, that is the case. But I think that this population of teens that do still have those like maybe a little bit higher support needs. These types of programs are very few and far between. From my perspective, I'm not an expert on like every opportunity that there is for youth in the city. But I think that to continue to offer these beginner intro accessible programs for this age group is so important. And I would even go further to say that like it's even more important for adults One of the major things that I've learned while working with this population is that there's a huge service cliff for autistic individuals once they hit 18. There's no longer any funding. There's a lot of eligibility criteria to get into certain services that are available that autistic individuals don't often meet. There's just like a lot of barriers in order to be successful once you're over the age of 18. And I think that like programs like this that are teaching like important life skills in a way that is very accessible and Also, like creating that community and social environment that's really safe, really help people get set up for success once they kind of turn 18 and are an adult and are expected to do these life skills that might be challenging to learn on their own. I can't speak for any of the organizations that don't offer those opportunities, but my assumption or my read would be, well, we're not going to offer that opportunity because we don't believe we can properly support people who are exceptional learners or people who have a physical challenge. And it's been my experience in talking to a number of people who are trying to get those programs or who have found their way into those programs where they are offered that those assumptions are often fear-based and they're not based in actual knowledge. I just spoke to a little girl who is just a tremendous, tremendous spirit. And cognitively, she is fantastic. She has some physical challenges. But people see that and they don't realize what she can do. And do you feel that is often the attitude that people are so focused on what someone might not be able to do that they don't allow them to show you what they can? Yeah, I think that there's kind of like two sides to that. I think that a lot of people don't believe that they 
have the means to be supportive and accessible and inclusive of different populations. And I think that a lot of organizations are really surprised that it's not like equipment or like super specialized training that really helps to create an accessible environment, but it's more just like the way you communicate and the way you front load expectations and the way that you provide motivation and all of these like really simple things that can be built into any program or session plan or whatever the case may be. But I also have heard from a large number of autistic youth and adults that like one of the things that they don't enjoy about going into community and community-based recreation is that there is this assumption that they're incompetent and that they're not able to do things on their own. And that creates a dynamic where they aren't able to be independent, they don't feel comfortable, and situations where you know, they just end up feeling worse about themselves because they go to this activity to have fun and, and just be a person among people. And then they kind of get robbed of that opportunity by people that have good intentions, I'm sure, to be able to be supportive and to make sure that they're having a good time. But oftentimes, you know, like anyone doesn't enjoy not having the opportunity to do what they can and just being told that you can't or having just a low expectation of you. That doesn't feel good for anyone. And when there's something that kind of leads a lot of people to feel the same way about you, I can't imagine what that would be like. But I've heard it's very frustrating. And I've heard that it's just like very unmotivating. And I think that's why a lot of our members really value our CAN programs is because they get to come in and we just get it. Like that's kind of the biggest feedback I've got is like when I come to this program, it's like the staff get it. The other participants just get it. There's no need to explain myself. There's no need to like advocate for myself. I, I can just be like a person among people. And I feel like Little Kitchen Academy has accomplished the same thing from what I've seen of it. I've only been to two sessions, but I was very impressed. So um, I think very highly of Little Kitchen Academy. And I think that that assumption isn't there. Like I remember even in our first week, we had a participant who didn't appear to be as independent as they were when they came, but were given the opportunity to do everything on their own and kind of make their own mistakes if they were to make them. And they were great. They needed very little support. And I think just the appearance of them was very misleading, but I really respected how the instructors didn't belittle them by assuming that they couldn't do the tasks. They were given different options at some points, but the participant was able to choose what they wanted to do. And sometimes, yeah, they did take the adaptation that was maybe a little bit simpler, but oftentimes they did exactly what everybody else in the class did. And that was their choice. And the instructors were very respectful of that. And I was very happy. I was like ready to jump in and be like, they can do it, but I didn't need to. So that was awesome. Those snippets are from six of the more than 20 episodes we created this past year. And one of the beautiful things about this podcast is that we could have taken clips from any of our conversations to exemplify the theme of service. If you've enjoyed this compilation, I encourage you to listen to those episodes in their entirety wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate, review, and recommend Meet Me in the Kitchen to your network as well. That puts a wrap on 2023. But we're looking forward to bringing you more fantastic podcasts in 2024 and beyond. From all of us at Meet Me in the Kitchen and Little Kitchen Academy, have a safe, happy, and healthy holiday season. And we'll talk to you in the new year. Meet Me in the Kitchen is curated and produced by Toolkit Content. 
You can find more information about Little Kitchen Academy, including classes, locations, employment, and franchise opportunities at littlekitchenacademy.com. What's the one ingredient that's always in your kitchen? 